find the four basic terms of sin, and we spoke about the four consequences of sin, legal, social, moral, and theological. And of course, when one transgresses, however one defines sin, there are implications to it. One of the interesting um, examples that we'll talk about a little bit later on is the case of adultery. Adultery is interesting because it's a case where a man and a married ma- man sleeps with a married woman and the child is what's known as a mamzer. Mamzer is an incestuous child. Now over here, nobody's going to hold the child responsible. The child is morally clean as well as theologically clean, obviously. However, the child has to suffer from certain both legal and social sanctions. It's one of those famous cases of um, what one could see as in, an injustice in the Jewish legal system. Why is it so? One has to ask the question. The child didn't do anything wrong, and yet the parents did. The child shall suffer because of this. Now, when you have a situation like this, and a child is moral and the- morally and theologically innocent, yet must suffer various legal and social sanctions, strives mightily to incredible degrees to cleanse that child of the legal and social sanctions. And then one wonders, well, if Halakha is going to do that, then why are they there in the first place? And then one has to try to somehow understand the um, ebb and flow of the legal system, wherein it tries to have its cake and eat it, and it wants to, perhaps one can argue, uh, Manuel Rackman, who is a very fine legal mind, a very fine legal mind, tries to argue that Jewish law often will try to have its cake and eat it where it's going to take certain transgressions and subject them to both legal and social sanctions and yet cleanse it afterwards, in which case the parents should be aware of what they're doing that's wrong and realize its implications. And then if, if it doesn't work, then they will think there's going to be a sanction against the child and then ultimately welcome and then ultimately you try to cleanse the situation so in that situation you want to um, try to have it both ways so we'll get to that later on now as we mentioned not every crime or sin has theological and or social legal implications and we have to as we go throughout our texts we have to try to figure out what are the social and legal and theological implications when someone transgresses as we said that's one story when somebody does something that's privately, a private transgression, it's called a different story. We then try to figure out if our definition of het, avon, and pesha, each different, het, innocent, off the mark, but transgression nevertheless, avon, intended perversion, pesha, rebellion, actually holds up throughout a, what we would call, transbiblical study. We mentioned, for example, when Yosef says, If I sleep with you, wife of Potiphar, hatati lerokim. Now, het means you're not really intending to sin. It's not rebelling against God. It's not really all that perverse. And yet, it's, a sin, it's off the mark. It's not what God really wants. Does that make sense in that context? It's an interesting claim, then, if we do see it this way, because then the passion felt would serve almost as a in quotes legitimate excuse one second to transform this from an avon to a het he of consenting adults she wants to assuming he had this interest in doing it and he does not because not yet 
She's not here yet. Okay, so now one has to try to evaluate what goes on when consenting adults are involved in this illicit relationship. And here Yosef makes the point, let's talk about that. Similarly, one of the difficult areas is when you look at the Ten Commandments, Shemot Kaf, does everyone have a Kumash, or more or less? Passing down, Shemot Kaf, Perek Kaf, Pasuk Vav, in one of the most problematic of verses, and we had seen this verse, within the context of idolatry, we have this pasuk, Here God takes note of the avon. Again, avon is not a het, it's not a pesha. Avon is not an accidental off-the-mark transgression, nor is a rebellion. Avon is what you would call intended perversion. God takes note of this intended perversion of the fathers on the banim, on the children, on the grandchildren, on the great-grandchildren, listen I. So, of course, the question will be raised. Right? You see it? It's five. Five. Sorry. I have it as six. Oh, it's five. Yeah, it goes Five is loaded right? I have it as six. Okay. Okay. In any case, the question over here is trying to figure out <clears throat> why does the Torah, first of all, use the word Avon here? God takes note of the Avon, not of the Tesha, out of the head. Why is it so? This Avon is not a rebellion against God, nor is it accidental. Why should God take note of this on the head of a child? Why should the child be held responsible for the perversion of the parents? Now, let me ask you a question. Could you think of any transgenerational element to sin? Is there any transgenerational element to sin? Or any behavior? Right. Yeah. Eric does it. The kid. Well, okay. So that's on a social psychological level. Let's say on a um, well, is there any truth to the statement that the children of alcoholics are going to become alcoholics? Yeah. Sorry. There is high carbon. Okay. Good. That's for sure. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. That's on a, on a again, social psychological level. But I'm wondering if one even goes beyond that. It's not only a question of perceived behavior of the children to the parents. You mean genetically? Well, they're wondering about that. Genetically or medically? Genetically or medically, right. Certainly, obviously, a woman who drinks while she's pregnant, the fetus could suffer from what's known as fetal alcohol syndrome, right? FAS. Very serious, very serious disease. And in many cases, there are obvious, obvious implications for what a parent does to a child on a social psychological level, as well as a behavioral level, and sometimes, obviously, on a genetic level. Now, the cutting edge that of, of genetics, people are raising questions as to whether or not there are genetic markers for crime. Right? How would that be? Well. What is compassion? Is compassion an emotion that we feel? Is compassion a learned behavior? Are some people naturally more compassionate than others? Think about your kids. You all, you know, have kids one, two, three, four, and whatever. Do, do, do certain of your kids feel more sensitively for, as at a young age, at a three-year-old, a four-year-old level, than other, than other children? 
If so, why is it so? Is that a learned behavior, or could there be some genetic component to it? If it is genetic, you can't be blamed, so it can't be sick. Of course. No, absolutely. Unless, unless it's, there might be a more subtle way of approaching it. I read a fascinating book this year, it's called On Human Behavior. By? It's a little old. By? It's old because it's about 10 years old. Yeah, he's a famous, he's a psychobiologist. Yeah, he's a psychobiologist. And he explains it like this. He says, first of all, everything is genetic, which I can, I have to agree with that. Everything has a genetic predisposition. It makes sense. Obviously. He says that humans are not like animals. You know, we're, high, we're high, more highly developed, so that the genetics give you the predisposition. And you may have the predisposition to be both compassionate and, uh, you know, whatever, the opposite of compassion, <laughs> non-compassionate. Cool. But cool. then environment plays, yeah, cool. <coughs> plays the role of bringing the one to the four for the other. other. Right. Um, and then some people will have more of a predisposition to be compassionate or more of a predisposition to be cruel. Right. But, predisposition. They, but those predispositions can be overcome if the right environment is in place. Right. So okay, everything good. ultimately has to be genetically genetic, based, genetic, but also genetic. nature plays... You didn't get in nature. Nature and genetics and environment. Yeah. What about... If you have a bad genetics and bad environment, right. are you not to be blamed? Well, that's you know, that's, that's one of issue, that's right? one of the yeah. tough questions. I mean, it's really a tough question of, of people that grow up in the, right in the, the Harlem environment, where they only see X Y Z, or in a more radical case, where they in the Nazi youth who grew up in the Nazi youth who only saw Nazis as an ideology, as a philosophy. How does one blame them? We who blame them, we who blame them, have to assume that one has a component part to their humanity which should automatically tell them this is wrong. Genocide is wrong. Again, take an extreme example. Somebody is, is, is born in, say, 1925 and he only grows up in a Nazi, Nazi ideological household. His friends are all Nazis' children. His, uh, he's part of Hitler Youth. He sees it in school. He sees it in, in, in his uh, Nazi youth. He sees it in the army. Now it's 1944. Right? He's about 19 years old or 20 years old, and he's told to shoot to kill the Jew. Can he not? Should something tick off in him and say, hold on, that's wrong. I should, or, or should he just shoot? That's a serious question. Is aggression a natural new found? Is it learned in Conrad Lorenz's uh, famous book? Or any of that. So that's certainly a very serious question. Is the Nazi morally responsible? How would he be? On the other hand, it's abhorrent to say that he's not. So Judaism would obviously say that there's a certain, it seems to be, as we see later on, a natural morality, which means you know what's right, you know what's wrong, almost naturally, without God telling you, don't kill, is almost instinctive. And again, that's not only a Jewish issue, it's a philosophical issue, it's been one that's debated the last 2,000 years. And nobody can quite get a grip on that. Is morality natural or not? Is the law? In, in the law, in the law, there's the same thing. You have the naturalist and the positivist. You believe that you have to be to follow the law, the positivist and naturalist, because it's a higher moral order. And what really brought the naturalists in front was, was the Holocaust. That was the, uh, the thing that happened. There was a case where a woman uh, wanted to uh, get rid of her husband. She ran at somebody else. So she found out he was, uh, he was doing something against Nazis, so she 
Which seems to impact upon us in the Pasuk. That is, only if the children are son I will this net result occur. Son I is referring if they to the children or to the original sinner? I, I think it's to the children. That would make the Pasuk make sense. <coughs> and Pokir is not necessarily negative. Remember, God takes note of. But Pokir means to take note of. Pay careful attention to. That could be negative or could be positive, presumably. So here we have this example where there seems to be a transgeneration element to sin. We had seen Cain. Cain also speaks about his Avon. Gadol Avonim in Cain, in chapter 4, we had seen. Now, Cain was much more intense than Ahet, yet it was not a rebellion against God, it was not called a Pesha, but rather it was sin of malice and intent, for which he is, of course, held responsible for. We then studied the sin of Adam and Chava. Adam and Chava is a breach against whose law? God's law. Was it a rational law? No. Was it a moral law? No. It almost seems that Torah at this point in the very first opening chapters tells us that Adam is every man. Every man is prone to sin. What were the elements of sin in that context? If you recall, there was ta'ava, there's desire. Somebody wants your Nike sneakers. So it commits a crime. Desire. There's sudden impulse, which we had seen. There's rationalization, which we had seen. These, from a Torah's point of view, are the elements that ultimately makes up sin in that context. Then we saw Cain, where you have jealousy, you have anger, which could also lead a person to transgression. But here it's a moral norm that's violated, as opposed to the so-called ritual norm in the first chapter. Interesting is that in both these cases, God plays a role. Obviously, he plays a role in the first case. It's his law that's being violated. Here, it's also his law that's being violated. It's a transgression against the rights of another human being. You have no right to someone else's life. You did so. And therefore, you are held responsible. And God is he who shall hold you responsible. So here you see almost a two parallel lines crossing. Ritual law and moral law are both transgressions against divine law. Divine law is both A and B. And in both cases, you see that you have bichirah hokshit, you have free will in both cases. Even, interesting, Adam and Chava can violate divine law in his own garden, such as the power of sin. A. B, in both cases, you are held responsible for your transgressions. Now, this is almost an answer to modern criminal theory, which does not want to hold the person responsible for his transgressions. He was raised in Harlem, his father was a drunk, his father wasn't even there, no rest, and he went and shot and killed somebody. Now, whether or not we want to hold the person morally responsible, or theologically so, certainly, legally and socially, we have to hold that person responsible. We all agree. Right? We want to go a step further and say, you are morally responsible, you killed somebody. But how would that person know not to kill for somebody's sneakers? His older brother did it, his friends did it, why should he do it? Yeah? The Torah seems to be telling us that there is a natural morality. <coughs> yes. Because yeah, absolutely. Now it's given a commandment which he breaks, and it's a ritual commandment. It's not right. there's, no, there's no social moral 
Correct. He's punished, so it's a natural morality. Right. It would seem to be, it's an interesting uh, discussion, but it seems to be that from this biblical point of view, it's natural morality. I'm not sure how comfortable Chazal, the rabbi's Talmud, felt with that concept. It's an interesting question. It's a famous debate among uh, some contemporary Jewish philosophers as to whether or not there is a natural morality. Most would prefer the Kantian system that law is commanded. That's clear cut. And they try to reinterpret these texts Talmudically to try to figure out how there was a communication or that he should have known or he didn't know or... He learned from the law of the jungle. Sorry? That's a whole debate. One article is um, Marvin Fox's article on natural law. It's natural law in the Jewish and Christian traditions. If you want to read it, we can share it with you. And he wants to hold that it is. And he holds the Rambam says the same thing. There's no natural law. Rambam holds there isn't the natural law. Well, that's the two different philosophers argue about what the Rambam says. Oh, the first one and the Fox. So you have to analyze it on your own. It says. Having one of the Ten Commandments of saying you, shall, you shouldn't kill, doesn't that sort of prove... That's positive law. That will, uh, that you essence. need God to make well, that's, it law. Well, God it's not natural. It's not natural. But that's another state of... Development. That's a later state of development. This is an early... This is a... Right. Primal so this is a... Even if it's a natural law, the Torah will still have to be stated in the Torah. Why? And yes, it, it it does, that, that there's a punishment for it. Well, yeah, there, has, there always has to be the same thing, yeah. There, there's no warning, there's no punishment, so there has to be right. for that. Right, so that would seem to be the reason. But so that doesn't really help us one way or the other. But we need the statement of the Ten Commandments irrespective of the question of natural law or not. Natural, yeah. Right, yeah, I, I agree, I hear that, sure. Okay, so but in any case, so you see that ethical sin is a violation of God's rule, as is the ritual sin. Both are. Keep in mind that in pagan literature, these two areas, the ritual and the pagan, were separate. And that one could very easily violate an ethical law and ritually atone for it. It's the question whether or not you can do that Jewishly. Say again? Can I commit an ethical transgression and atone for it ritually? I steal, I say sorry to God, and I bring a korban or something. The answer is no. Yes. I still have to make restitution to that person I stole from. Well, correct. So Judaism seems to intersect these two lines of ritual and ethical law. And I think it's important to know because one asks the question, what's the point of ritual law? Judaism is a very ritualistic religion. And certainly it's one of the great questions the 20th century has asked, the Reform Jews have always asked. Reform Jews say we don't need ritual law. Even though human beings are ritually inclined, we shake hands. What is the shaking of a hand? Obviously it's a ritual. What does it signify as a ritual? Warmth. Friendship, concern, caring, and it's a ritual. Right? Sorry? And you're not carrying a weapon. You're not carrying a weapon originally. Correct. So you have that ritual. It's a very nice ritual. It's a, it's a very meaningful ritual. And as human beings, we need rituals. So Torah seems to say that if you are ritually inclined, then you'll be more likely to follow an ethical law. One can, I said, one can argue that way. Teaching children. Is it easier to teach a child ritual law or ethical law? And your old parents, what do you think? Ritual, ritual law. It's almost obvious. You like killing Shabbat, your three-year-old is going to say it's Shabbat. Ritually. Because they, 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 they
Okay, okay good. To get them, you know, hooked on the ritual. Good. But do they get, do they get them ethically? Is my question. <coughs> Hmm? Do, they, do they teach them an ethical law? Do they, do they go beyond that you know, ritual? I have to give them the, the benefit of the doubt and the credit to say that they do, but I think they emphasize the other so much that it's hard to see. Okay, so well, we, we see that... That's what I'm not specific. We saw that in, so far, you see the Torah is almost trying to give you a, some, some sense of the psychology of sin, some sense of the motivational factors in sin, yet also aware of the legal social implications to sin. Remember the very famous pasuk that Hashem tells Cain that he was about to murder. And Hashem tells him again in chapter 4. Yeah. La Peta Hatat Rovet. What verse is it? Chapter 4. It's pasuk. It's amazing how central a category sin is, biblically speaking. The first two, again, the first two encounters you have with human beings involve sin. And it remains a central category throughout the entire Tanakh. In the very first class we had, you remember how many times the word sin appears in Tanakh? Avon, Peshach, you know, a thousand times that these terms appear. When God in verse 6 says, Lama, why are you angry? Why are you depressed? Don't you know? And this seems to be, again, natural almost. If you improve, you'll be lifted up. If you don't improve your ways, sin hatat crouches at the door, and to you it has desires. Interesting question. Is the human being a tabula rasa, in John Locke's terms, or is there an inclination towards transgression? Do you think tabula rasa? No. Oh, no. no okay. That's why I should because it can't be tabula rasa. You don't like John Locke, huh? He's English, that's why. He's English, right? Okay, so that's an interesting question. This woman on a verified record. You're kidding me. She verified. She knew Van Gogh. Van Gogh? Of course. He was English. I can't believe she knew it. And that's, and that's a nice letter. <laughs> 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 On those words, she passed away. <laughs> nice lady. She had his ear. She, uh, she was the one I was wondering about that. Okay, so here you have the pasuk, however, you can master it. Good. Let's look at a number of other texts to see, to understand this biblical concept. Here's a very important pasuk in Bereshit Tetvav. Bereshit Tetvav. Right. I think so. Uh, this is the midst of, of Abraham's great vision, where his children are promised a great land. Fantastic story. Right? Now, you Abraham, everybody have it? Fifteen fifteen. Fifteen? Yeah, chat 15, what's wrong? What I do, I'm not a 15. What's surprising over here? Your children shall be strangers in a foreign land for 400 years. They shall be afflicted and enslaved. But, 13, 14, this nation that shall afflict and enslaved shall be judged. And afterwards, your people shall leave with great rechush, great inheritance. 
Vatatva, you shall die in peace. You shall be buried with great old age. The fourth generation shall return here. Now, here's the reason. Kilo shalem avona emuri adhena. What was that telling me? What does shalem mean? The sin of the Amorites, the Canaanites, has not yet reached that level. So, of course, A, we're talking about Avon, not Het and not Pesha. It cannot be Pesha rebelling against God. And Het is just too much uh, off the mark, innocent, accident type of thing. So Avon is the right word. But what are we saying over here? The, these are intentional transgressions. What is it we're not told? Whatever that Avon is, we don't know. We have to figure that out. It's certainly not... Abu Dazara, because in no place do we really find that a pagan is held responsible for his paganism. We'll see that later on. And here what God is saying is that their intentional transgressions, not ritual, and if not pagan then what, is not yet reached that plateau. That level wherein they have to be expelled from the land. Right? So God says we have to wait. Presumably. Coming back. I drove somebody home from Shul today. I drove Harry's uh, Shwaki from home to the Shul. He was on the ocean. It was the most fantastic, after the Ariat, it was the most fantastic rainbow. You can't imagine, over the ocean. I want to take the kids there. From one corner, all the three, every other house. Wow. You would have been, it, was, it, was, it was raining, and it was sunny over here. The perfect conditions for a rainbow. <laughs> yes, let's do that. I told that's why you make a cake, Emily, because of Renee. So next week is to make a cake. I'll make a cake. Sorry? I'm sorry? And they brought a cake. They have an ice cream cake. They have a cake. Yes, Charlie, because it's his birthday party. Okay, so we have over here, we have to try to figure out what is the sin. But, what? No. I know. I know. Okay, so that this this Avon is not defined. It's not clear. No, no, we don't have meat here. No, no. So here the question is raised: What exactly is the Avon? But God wants to, Abraham to wait, and presumably, if that Emori people never transgress that period, the Jews won't inherit the land. That's what Avon is all about. Right? God says there has to be justice over here. There has to be something that's appropriate and right and, and correct, and it's not. If God were to say to Abraham, I am going to throw out these pagans, irrespective of their sin quotient, that would be unjust. Can't do it. No, no, to the contrary. We cannot... No, but God, it's like a, it's a, it's a done deal. 
No, in the fourth, the fourth generation will come back. It's not saying maybe in the fourth generation. It's saying in the fourth generation. So it's, so it's prophetic. God having known what's going to happen. Oh, okay. He's not, he's not We see too much, uh, right. We see that it cannot be forced. Let's go one step further. Look at Sodom and Amorah. Sodom and Amorah, we have two contexts. Sodom and Amorah. And again, we look at Sodom and Amorah in Parashat Vayira. Is there any sin that is stated without Sodom and Amorah? We look at chapter 18, Abraham fights and everything else. And look at chapter 18, verse 20. God says, the agonizing screams of the people of Sodom and Amorah is great and hatatam is very heavy that's hard to understand what is a ze'aka where does ze'aka play a role where else does ze'aka play a role it's, it's in different places where he says I hear the screaming of the, of the widows and the orphans good okay ze'aka seems to, exactly ze'aka is the oppressed the cry of the oppressed right so here's Stoma if anything their, their people are oppressed it is great Rabbah it's great and their sin is very heavy now we've been seeing sin as that which is just that which is off the mark not so serious not a rebellion against God now they, were, they had no God to rebel against so the Pesha can't play a role over here now we understand that but why are we calling what they were doing as head? They're guilty of two things. One, they're guilty of zakat kiraba, and the, the the cries of the oppressed is great, and their off the mark head are very heavy. How do we understand that? Hatatam is is their sins. Their heads, yeah, their hatatam. Yeah. It's very heavy. Even the term heavy is a unusual combination. combination. Right. One should check if it appears any place else. I don't know how to do that, but one should do that. Does head ever apply with kaved? Applies one, I think one other place, but in any case, what is it? Why do you use the word heavy with a head? Why head in this context? Head is that which is yes. Het is a off-the-mark kind of... Again, what's the original Pasuk in Mishleh? You shot an arrow, you're off-the-mark. That's called a het. Off-the-mark. Again, on the we can say that they didn't know better. They didn't okay. have a frame of reference. Good. So what you're saying is that if that's the case, then a person can be part of society where he doesn't know better, he's off-the-mark, and yet still be held responsible for it. It's still going to punish you. I forgot one of the prophets, they talk about it. They say it's, it's a social... Uh, well, the Zakat tells me it's a social transgression. Right. But what? Not which are theological. Ishayal, probably. They mention it and they say it's social because, you know, socially they oppress the poor. Right. The Midrash, of course, makes that very clear. The Midrash is the very famous statement which tries to concretize what really is sometimes biblically implicit. And here the case, of course, was that some poor man came and some little young woman gave him to eat and then she was taken and, and that, they didn't want people, throngs of people coming to, beggars coming to them and therefore they had to punish her properly. So they took her and they 
cover it with honey and they put it on top of the roof and she was eaten to death, sunk to death by, a bee, by, the, by the bees. No, that's just, no, but, but that's just only, only a dramatization of this Zia'aka story. Right? And Sodom, Rodmo had the famous, what's it called, the Crustean bed. What's the Crustean bed? They stretched her, if you were short, and they cut you if they if you were too long for it. Sorry? They tell that to the kids. <laughs> 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 well, it's not in the text, I should tell them it's not here. But in any case, it's only trying to convertize evil of Sodom. Why? This point. Why does Udash try to do that? I would think because it wants to make, it wants us to be impacted upon by the text. It's not good enough to simply say that they were evil. Because we want, A, we want to know how, but if you want this to have a powerful effect on me, tell what they did that was wrong. Good. So why does the Bible do that then? Images are concrete. Images I need. That's right. What the Bible intends. The Bible wants you to fill in the gap. Why? Give you, gives you flexibility. Right. The flexibility of generations is what's necessary to make a code of law work. Now, a rabbi giving a sermon on this parashah would, of course, raise all these issues about the terms that's used, etc., and make the point that hey, over here, which is only off the mark, but over here, sometimes. A learned response can still be a transgression. They learned socially what to do, which happened to have been, from a biblical point of view, a head. Not from their point of view, obviously. From their point of view, it was not inappropriate whatsoever. It was a learned response of evil that they are still being held responsible for. In other words, a society can construct itself to the point where it is, where it is such a bad society, evil society, but they won't even know it is so. It becomes normative. Good. We're going to see how that plays itself out also in the Mabu. Isn't the, is the punishment you know, equal to what the uh, transgression is? Well, in this particular case, one likes to view it is very measure for measure. Why? Because one sees them as having overturned all of the natural moral norms of goodness. In the words of, I think it's Yeshayahu, only la tov la tov ra. That's when there's no hope for your society anymore because there's no framework of reference. What do I do now? You've learned, you see, in every which learned way that you can learn about morality, you are seeing the opposite. As in Nazi Germany. That's what's astounding about this. This is contemporary, it's current. You kill the Jews and you let live the Nazi Aryans. So they had overturned all of the sources of morality. And of course, what is their punishment? They are overturned. The side is overturned because they overturned morality. They were just destroyed. Overturned. There's an element over here of a volcanic eruption. No, I'm talking about you know, your, your question is whether there was an overturning. No, the term uses there was an overturning, and it seems to have been that the overturning was um, a volcanically related issue. It's So the way stars want to see Amra, they see that, that it was some kind of volcanic eruption, or, and there are volcanoes in Israel. Right? That's well known. It's in fact one impending, they say, next 50 years, an earthquake. 
earthquake, which is usually associated with volcanic activity. So there were earthquakes and And I do want to explain, in Sana's book, Understanding Desert, he does say that this, this Jordan River is on that one of the faults. And there is occasional earthquakes, with which case will ignite the sulfur and the bitumous coal, whatever it is, bitumous. And that's where you smell the smell of uh, burnt stuff. So you have that kind of a, an effect. When was the last one? It was a hundred years ago, in 1898, 1894. In the major one. Yeah. Because they're always tremors. Yeah, yeah, they're tremors. They say a major, and it was not fit for it at all. It's a horrific story. They say the buildings aren't fit. Not at all, not at all. Are they on the fault line? Is that what you think? Part of it, of Israel is. Really? Part of it is on the fault line. They're not fit for it at all. They, they couldn't worry about it. How could you what? I'm sorry? In, in, in fighting 100 million Arabs, I mean, in five wars and everything else, and that's, uh, they say, it's very frightening. I mean, it's, who knows, but it's next 50 years, something like this. Very difficult. Well, that's a good way to get all the refugees employed. Uh, uh, Let them rebuild everything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Take a trip. Well, yeah, if you go, it's more powerful to tell them that. Okay, now, interesting, of course, the only concrete example that we have of the evil of Saddam, which we also right now, is Lot. Right? Lot's case is an interesting one. People are outside. They're guests. And of course, the Midrash uses this as well. And he begs them, come inside. You stay outside, you're going to be who knows what. He brings them in, takes care of them. He's Abraham's chesed kind of person, with chesedim. They surround the house. Bring them out when they are or time. Question is, what do they want to do to them? Of course, the word Yada is a sexual term. It has to do with what? The most profound kind of human relationship. Knowing a woman experiencing a man at its most profound level is the way that you know that person, in quotes. Right? That's the most profound term the Bible uses for sexual relationships. Though it uses which is more carnal. He came unto her, which means it's just a matter of passionless, physical involvement, right? Those are the three terms that's used for sexual relations. So now, how could we use this term of benedea otam, that people don't say, if it's such a brutal, horrifying, homosexual act? Why would I use the term benedea otam, which is a term of profound sensitivity and understanding in that context, which is actually the opposite of it, opposite of it. The answer is, one more example of Sohamra overturning the meaning of words, overturning what's right and what's wrong. They took the beauty of the sexual relationship and they made it into something horrific. And worse is that they see it as Nida'a Otam. They see it as Nida'a. When in fact it's a carnal, animalistic relationship. So against the Ramura has overturned, and therefore, of course, they will pay the price for that. Good. Let's look at one more or two more contexts. In Hetamabu, we have the very famous generation of the flood. What was their sin? What did they do that was so terrible? Why are they being punished? Look at the beginning of Parashat Noah, which is chapter... Welcome back. Soon. 
Talk me about the slide. Yes, it is right now. That's fine. Stop building your own. Now, what's the sin of the people of the flood? Is it a sin? Is it a pasha? Well, it can't be pasha, again, because there's no God against whom they are rebelling. We agree. It can't be pasha. How is it characterized? But tishachet atzbnaruhim. Now, the land was destroyed, devastated before God, and the land is full of Hamas. God sees the land and it's devastated because all basar, all basar, flesh, all animals even, has self-destroyed. Welcome, welcome. That's good. How you doing? Welcome. So we see over here is that what is Hashem see? Hashem sees over here that every basar self-devastated, it's dead. What does that mean? There's something not natural going on over here. It darkor means it follows its dead, its appropriate, proper pathway. It perverted the pathway. How does the Midrash concretize that statement? How does it provide an image? Sexual perversions, right? Sexual perversions. So the Midrash sees this as a sexual term, that even the animals were perverse. Okay, now the question is, is that in any way followed any context in our text? Any context over here? Well, we look at the text above, and we something very strange. In the beginning of chapter 5, what do you have? Pasuk Aleph. Right? Perek Vav. Pasuk Aleph. Perek Vav. above. Five Pasukim above. Six above. Right. By he kehem ha'adam, mankind became plentiful of Panadima on the earth, and they had women, daughters, Benot. Now there were men of Benadohim. Very strange term. We know it doesn't mean sons of God. Could mean men of stature. Elohim is a term of stature. How do you know it doesn't mean sons of God? Most men actually call it angels. Most. Yeah. Uh, the word, I'm only commenting that shot-wise, this could mean Elohim means men of power. The word Elohim means power, means a judge. A judge also is a term used for Elohim. So the question is, what is the original intent of this verse? Chapter 6, verse 2. So whoever these people are, men of power, men of stature, do we want to see it as angels? Wouldn't be that meaningful, I don't think. I made an argument that it's pagans. They're sons of other gods. They're not Elohim, you know, Elohim. Okay. So sons of... They're pagans. Oh, okay, good. Good. Okay, so I... Who did? Why? He said because when it's Elohim, it's modified and here it's not it's usually modified what is pagan? yeah when it's talking about Elohim not Elohim when it's Elohim everywhere else it's modified it's not by itself it doesn't stand alone well we say Elohim do not have other foreign gods what Elohim there is modified by foreign maybe I want us to study it no I don't know if that's the case this has been it when you have the word bener, that could be the modification of Elohim. Yeah. But so it could be. It's a, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a phrase. You know, yes. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's 
doesn't always apply. In other words, in Yonah, which we'll look at in a few minutes, you'll see that Elohim, that says, Vayiru, the people of Ninveh, Vayiru, Elohim, or Ha Elohim. Who are they fearful of? Of Hashem, God, or of their pagan gods? That they're afraid they're going to be destroyed. <coughs> look at that in a minute. Who wants to study this? But what happens over here? These men of stature, or of power, or judges, saw these women, Kitovotena. They were good. Now, when you use the word twelve in any context of Bittashit, what should you think of? God's pronouncement about the world is twelve. After every single day, after Tuesday, he sees every day is twelve, twelve, twelve. Here I have a twelve. They saw that these girls are twelve. So what does that mean? They took wives from whomever they chose. What's the problem with that? They didn't ask. Here is born the caveman image of banging them on the head, grabbing them by the hair. Do you have that in England, that caveman image? You have that too? Yeah. You have caveman there still? Sure. I know it. You're taking home by taxi. A taxi? Most of them wasn't, we are, right? And a top hat, of course. And they put them into the cave and they did their thing. So that seems to be the transgression. How do I know? With the next pasuk. God says, No longer will my presence dwell among mankind, He's too physical, he's too fleshy. And notes well the pasuk below. It's the giving in to the natural, human, physiological, biological inclinations. Great. That this seems to be dealing with. So this pasuk therefore tells me that that was their transgression. It wasn't paganism, it wasn't Avodazara, rather it was this pasuk of Perekvar, Pasuk Bet, shifting forward, becoming a norm of society. This becomes a norm of society. Therefore, God says, I'm going to limit human beings' life. Then we talk about the children that were born. And then, Pasuk 5, God sees the evil of mankind, that his thoughts are only this way. Therefore, God regrets having created man. Sorry to his heart. Therefore, he's erased. As God creates fashioned man out of the dust of the earth, water shall erase that creation. Man is dust. You sprinkle it, you water it, what happens to dust? You take clay, it disappears. That's why it's emhev. Emhev is the midakinimida. Man was fashioned out of dust and hardened, baked by the sun, and then by Kaptava, and in this human being was breathed the soul of life. Now, if you just massively inundate that clay item, full of to it, it'll just be erased. So this over here, the, the, the sin over here seems to be this giving in to the physicality, to the biology, to the inclinations, without respecting the what of the other. Telemelokim, correct, exactly. That's what it seems to be over here. Got it. <laughs> 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 the doubt, the respect, the sign, the name. Can the sin also be us equating goodness with the visual world, the way that they saw that it was good, saying that what is good is what appears um, visually pleasing? It's an interesting point. You're saying that they made a moral judgment. Torvot. Right. Torv, again, is a very powerful biblical term, Torv. Again, it's the key term in Bereshit. In the creation narrative, the key term, key term, key term is Torah. God sees that it's all Torah. They saw, you'll see the parallel. The God saw that it's Torah. 
They now see that what is taught, the physicality of the woman, giving into their own physicality. And it's only a key element of a human being should want you to rise above that. In the sexual description, in uh, Pedagdalit, you don't have any seeing. In Pedagdalit, but he experiences her. Interesting, there's no term for seeing there, right? It's, he experiences her, he knows her in a biblical sense, he becomes intimate with her. It's a psychological experience that gives birth to a child, but not a physical seeing. To the contrary, where does Vayat play a role? In chapter 3, where she sees the tree, it looks tasty. So there's much to be said for Renee's point that seeing leads to it. Now, interesting also that in that chapter 3, you also have the word Bayar, correct? Also the word Yod-Ayat, the same words play. You'd be like God, knowing good from evil. So all of these elements seem to indicate that the transgression is related to that, and Bayar also plays a role, as does the word Tov, correct, good. Okay, so this seems to define the pagan sin. The pagan sin of Sodom, Mabu, all of these transgressions seem to be a perversion of that which is natural. Similarly, you have over here the Timur'ah's Hamas. Hamas, of course, is a very powerful biblical term and seems to be the death knell for society. See that over here, when you are a Hamas person, then you have to die. The society cannot continue to exist. Where else do we find Hamas? We find it with Yonah. You don't have, so those of you who have Tanakhs, some of you some don't, look at Yonah, right? Yonah is, of course, very famous. Yonah is the prophet who attempted to flee from God during the middle of the 8th century. 17 before the Common Era, God tells him, go to the pagan city, Nineveh. God's concern goes beyond the Judean. Go to, exclusively, go to the pagan city, right? And say to it that the evil has come up before me. Yonah says, I'm not going. Nobody knows why, but you won't discuss it right now. I know why. No one tell you. You know why too? There you go. Kings 2, 14, 23. Kings 2, 14, 23. As he sees further, sees that eventually they're going to come back and destroy even after they do not there, but not there. <laughs> not that well he's showing off. He didn't want them to do Teshuvah. He did not want to, correct. Yeah. Right, he did not want to Teshuvah because that's, that's Charlie's point. Because he saw that they're going to eventually... Right. No, the answer is 2 Kings 14, 23, 24. That's not fair. That's what's going to happen. I'm not going to do that now. You do it with Tom. That's your armor. Go ahead. He didn't want... He didn't think they were deserving of... Yeah, yeah, you're right. God says this. He says no. But that's my point right now. I'm not worried about it right now. You want to deal with the two, Kings 2, 14. Do it later. Right now, let's look at their transgression. So again, God tells him to do He doesn't do so. He gets swallowed by this great big... Whale. Whale. Who says a whale? Fish. It's a big fish that David one day would want to catch. That's what you learn in the second you, whale. Whale. <laughs> Can be arranged. Can be arranged. It's swallowed by a big fish. It's very funny. It's not, it's not a whale. It's a big fish, right? Now, the question is, what is their transgression? We look at chapter 3. He goes there three days. Gets there in one day. 
He uses five words. Od arba'im yom nidbe'i nihalalat. That's all he says. Right? Nidbe'i nihpeket. Sorry, nihpeket. It'll be overturned. Key word. Life's dome amurah, overturned. What did they do wrong? Well, they believed in God. Vyaminu achilideh belohim. That's unadorned. Now, what is it referring to? Hashem? I'm sure not. You think so, Jaime? How would you think so? Were you there? What? They believe in God? Because otherwise, why did they make Tishuba? Because they believe in the gods, the gods who punish. They believe in punishment comes in the wake of, tra- of, uh, of transgressions, for sure. It's good paganism, but why would they get to, to Hashem? I can't see that. They call a fast day because they believe in the gods. Sure, the product of Sakim, they wear sackcloth from the young to the old. The old dressed in sackcloth, man and animal. So how strange it is. The animal also is dressed in sackcloth. Strange pagan notion. They call out to Elohim. They call out to God, the Hoska. I would think to whomever they thought is God. Good. Each man returns from his derech, evil derech, So the key here is also Hamas, as it is in Hekim Avur. Here you have the two common words of derech in both places, as well as the term Hamas. So, so but what you're saying here is that Goyim can make their own Shabbat to whoever God they... Sure. They're not held responsible for paganism. And they can have their own gods. Yeah. It does, but at the, the question is at what point are they made aware of that? That's one question. Uh, but let's leave that aside for a second. So Hamas is in both places, and one would think that the transgression is not paganism that they're being held responsible for, rather Hamas, a perversion of the social order. And again, because the word Neyapechet is over here, overturned, it seems to be that a society can become so self-corrupted that no longer is good and evil very evident. If it gets to that point where it's not evident whatsoever, it's no matter what happens, and you're overturned. Here they were still aware. Here they could still see that they were perverting the social order, the good and evil. Again, the verse in Yeshayahu is Umrim When you think that which is good is evil, that which evil is good, then that would be an indication of Hamas, which merits destruction on a pagan level or on the Jewish level, of course. Interesting though, I don't think we ever find Hamas, I'm trying to think, if we ever find Hamas among Judeans, among those Jews who lived in Judea during the uh, 8th, 7th, 6th century before the Khurban ben Amitash, where the Jews guilty of Hamas. Here we see the Mabuz guilty of Hamas, here we see that Yonaz Ninveh was guilty of Hamas. Were the Jews guilty of Hamas, and then we have to think about... Well, not Hina, but not Hina. That's by Cheney period. That's five years later. And that's a Talmudic comment. I'm talking about a biblical comment, trying to figure it out from here. Okay, so what we see over here is, again, sin, transgression, plays a great role. And in all of these cases, of course, one wants to note that there is free will to transgress there is free will to do teshuvah in one case it is taken up and in this case in Mabu it is not done so and of course everybody is held responsible for their deeds on the Jewish level on the non-Jewish level yeah 
warning level are they not warning? There's no warning. Good. Well, that's the Midrasha comment. The Midrasha comment on Noah is that he had to build for 120 years. Hundred and twenty years. The Midrasha comment. Sorry. Yes. In order for sorry, sorry, for the purpose of having them ask. But if it, that's not according to the Pshat. The simple meaning of it does not tell us they were ever warned. The question is why, and the answer would seem to be. In the very same, the Shahid asked me, I don't mean, there was no hope. With the Shahid asked, the land is, the society can become so self-corrupt, and there's just no help, no hope that, and it's going to help them. What could help this people? Once you reach that stage of Hashhatata Aritz. Sodom was not, Correct. Right. Right. Once you've overturned that point. And again, the question is, if that sounds impossible to you, then you look at Nazi Germany and raise the question. What was Nazi Germany? It had a structured society that was able to mobilize enough forces to produce an incredible killing machine. Mind-boggling. When you think about the, you know, what was it, 12,000 that were killed every hour or so. To, to have killed the numbers, 8, 10, 15 million people in the course of, is, is a stand, how do you do that? Technologically, how do you do that? What do you do to people? I mean, burn and, and bury and it's an amazing killing machine I mean one of the indictments of, of Nazis that they were able to harness all the powers of modern society in a killing effort which is exactly the opposite of what progress always meant progress meant we technologically advance ourselves to change to better to improve to impact to bring the last year and all that they reversed that whole value it was an incredible throwback of going back to the enlightenment period the Enlightenment began with this notion of improving utopia, let's get to the end of the road, Bashiach. That's it. The modern society has adopted our cost of messianic, a messianic period of time, Bashiach. They did exactly the reverse. It's an astounding, barbaric, uncivilized period of time. And it worked. They did it. It's incredible. It wasn't only one man. I mean, whether or not you take Golhagen's thesis seriously or not, that they all knew and all participated. Certainly there were at least a million people who were part of the Nazi party. There were a million Nazis. Of the 60 million people in Germany, there were a million Nazis. Amazing. From the doctors and lawyers, professors, Heidegger is one of the most brilliant of 20th century philosophers. And he was a Nazi. So it makes sense. He's been studying about goodness his whole entire life. He bought into it. He did it. Evil knows no bounds. It's a question. Mostly, mostly they renounce it if they lost the war. <laughs> Smart guy. I mean, he's no jerk. He's PhD in philosophy. He has to get it right. But he has some brains up there. Heidegger, Heidegger, Vienna, doesn't matter. Okay, now I want to just look at two other issues. <laughs> two other issues. Two other issues. Very quickly. There are two other interesting contexts over here. Where one with Abraham and Paro. Paro takes Sarah. Innocently. It seems, right? This is um, in Lechlecha, in chapter 12 or 13. Let's see his reaction. He's going to be held responsible for this. Abraham in chapter 12, verse 11, Yudbet Yudalef, says what? Abraham says to his wife, I know you are beautiful. 
Physically, you're beautiful, very attractive woman. You have dignity, you have majesty, you have glory. Right? When the Egyptians shall see you, they will say, this is his wife, they'll kill me and they will give you life. Please say you're my sister. It will be good to me for you and I will live because of you. Right? Not a very nice proposal. Right? The Ramban is very upset at my mind at, at Abraham for this and he sees it as a transgression. Uh, no, absolutely not. Ramban cannot speak in our synagogue. That's correct. <laughs> good, good point. But it doesn't, so I think it's a, you know, anyway, to me. Abraham comes, they just see her, that she's beautiful. They see, again, by Yehuda, they see Renee, they see. Renee, you see? Chapter 12, verse 15. They see her, by Yehuda, they see her, 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 they praise her, 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 she is taken, the same word that we had seen above. The word to take means to grab, beyond your will. Sorry? Caveman. The caveman, right. Same word is used. She's taken the big battle. Abraham is, of course, lavishly brought gifts for, compensated for her, all kinds of fantastic gifts. Now, verse 17. God strikes Paral, great mass of Nigaim, plagues, his whole household, because of Sarah. Paral calls Abraham, says, what did you do to us? Watch how she's his wife. Now, again, many questions abound. How did the Nigaim imply that she's his wife? Midrash's answer, they couldn't conceive. For the period of time that Sarai is in the house of Paro, no woman, no man could have sexual relationships. So Paro understood from this, Midrash is that question. How does the pressure of Nigaim, these uh, great plagues, equal, he knows automatically that's his wife? Either way, watch them, she's system, I took it to, as a wife, now take your wife, go. Right? And Paro says to everybody, don't allow, don't anyone touch him. Get out. Right? That's one context. Hold on to that context. And look at the next context where this happens with Avimelech. Right? That happens again with Avimelech. Where is that? That is in... Um, <coughs> let's look at it in 17 or second. Uh, right before to a daughter. Um, Isn't it first? Right here, 20. 20, 20, 20. Now over here, 20, Abraham has the same exact story. Wife, sister of Emerit, is the king, Baikah. He takes her. Again, to deny a person their freedom, their rights, is a violation of Saint Chapter 20, verse 2. He takes her. He denies her. Over here? Over here? And what's that? He takes her. Yeah, I don't know. He takes her. Elohim comes to the middle in the night. Elohim does not come to Paro. Raise the question. Why does Elohim come to Abimelech and not come to Paro in the middle of the night? The other Lord says, you're going to die. Paro is not told that. There's a difference one has to take note of. You will die for this woman that you took, deny her freedom, Denying her children and Okim, she's a married woman. Avimelech right. did not have sex with her. Avimelech did not come close to her. But Yoma says, God, shall you kill a righteous man as well as a non-righteous person? So he argues. Hello, he told me, who's, who's the over here? Abraham. Abraham told me she's his sister. And she also said he's my brother. 
Betoli Ravi, with the wholeness of heart, with clean hands, I did all this. Wow. It's a very powerful argument. But Yomir Elav, God says to him, Elohim, the God says to him, in a dream, I also knew, again that interesting term, that with a cleansed heart you did all this, therefore, I prevented you, I held you back from sinning against me. It's a head. Why a head? Because it wasn't your fault. Because he said, sister, she said, brother, you wanted to marry her. It's not all it's off the mark. It's not his fault. It's not intense. Yes. A mill is off the mark. Therefore I didn't let you touch her. But it's more like she got Yeah. Yeah, she got that, but she had The fine line between head and she got should be explored. It's even more than Shagagah. What's that other term mean? Honest. It's like honest. No, because he still took her. He still took her. Right. There's something wrong with taking. It would seem to be. Correct. We are taught it's of Selim Now give the wife back to the husband. He's a Navi. He's a man of God. He has the word of God on his lips, and he could pray for you. And you will live. If you don't, then da no, you shall surely die. You know what you have. It goes over certain says that all these things that happen. The people are very afraid. Pagans are afraid. And the miracles of Abraham, what did you do to me? What, how did I sin against you? What did I do wrong to you that you caused me to do something wrong against you? That you brought upon myself and my whole kingdom, Hata'adiqla, this great transgression. Not Pesha, of course. Not even, it wasn't intentional perversity. It's not an Avon. It was Hata'adiqla. So he knew that it was wrong to do this. Avimelech rebuked Abraham for what he did. An appropriate rebuke. It's not done where a man gives his wife to the king or lets her play the role of sister, in which case she, she and he can fall by the wayside. So Abraham says, I thought there was no fear of God in this place, in Pasuk 11. They would kill you because of my, wife's, my wife. And then he has this interestingly lame excuse, she's my half-sister. Which is not the point, obviously. I mean, why do you say that? And oh, by the way, she is in fact my she's the daughter of my father, daughter of my mother, therefore I married her. Okay, so he gives her this whole entire story. So here again you have an interesting contest that should be studied more, but not right now, between Avimelech and Paro. Both have the same trappings, but both should be very different. And it's a head in this context over here. Something different in Paro's context, interesting. And yet in both cases, of course, all these cases, A, that they are pagans, God holds them responsible. B, they have the freedom, the freedom to choose to do or not to do, as they do. And that is really part of the motif of the entire biblical record, where every Navi speaks to the pagans for violations of the moral law. This, taking another man's wife, though you think she's a sister, the taking is a transgression. It's a violation of the moral law. I mean, Melech very clearly sees that and expresses that. We should study it. It's a good question. Not right now, because it's late. But it's certainly a very good question. How should we analyze David and Bacheva? What terms are used? Is it a Pesha? Is it a Avon? Is it a Hek? How are we to understand that? One would think it's a Hek. Why? Because it's passion. 
says, oh, come on, he sends the husband off to war, that's being invaded. Okay, so he didn't go to war. No, no, that could be viewed differently. Look, that act of, the second act is different than the first act. So we should divide both acts differently into both. In any case, also, uh, we'll have time to do it right now, but look at Amos, the first chapter. Amos goes to the pagan nation that surrounds Israel. Ashur Shah, Shah Yisrael, 7.15 before the common era, and it's about their transgressions. In all cases, their transgressions are not ritual nor pagan, but rather only moral. So these are all transgressions of the moral order. This set against the backdrop of the sin in chapter 3, which is the ritual violation. Both actually are violations of God's law, God's rule, and again, one is punished for all of these. God judges it all. There's an intermingling across sin of the ethical and the ritual. And one would think that part of the reason for that is to see the ritual as that which strengthens the ethical. But, in either which case, you still have the heavy emphasis in the book of Be'eshipa throughout the entire Tanakh on Het, Avon, and Pesha. What we're going to do next week is go to the rabbinic view of this for one week, one or two weeks. How do the rabbis view Het, Avon, and Pesha? We saw the psychological levels and the Torah. We saw all these motivational questions. And then go to the Rambam, the genus. Next week, we'll all. Next week, the following week, right. The following week, yeah. Okay? Thank you. Thank you.